to those arms, Lord God. May we look to you, Father. May we um, be sucked into your graces in such a way as to just swim in it and be overwhelmed by it and then receive from you. Um, we seek you with everything we've got this morning. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, shake a hand, or don't shake a hand, or shake a hand. Bump a fist, bump an elbow. <laughs> Say hello. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. How are we doing this morning? morning. We good? Are we? Good. All right. Good to see everybody this morning. Are we chipper? Obviously. Let me try that one one more time. (laughs) Are we chipper? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I dream about chippers because it means that winter's over. (laughs) Get it? Oh, have to be a landscaper to get that. All right. So... What a joy to see everybody this morning. Texas is in the house, baby. What's up? Good to see you. Home for the week? Fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Anybody else from out of state in today? Anybody going? Going once? Going twice? Yeah. Moving all of a sudden. I'm so moved by seeing all of you. And a lot of you have flip-flop sides. Honestly, I feel like I'm looking in a mirror. For the most part, what I'm looking at are like total flip-flop. I didn't recognize Ted and Mary over here because I only see one side of the face. The stages are usually over here. Oh, I love just calling everybody out. Rob, you're never on that side. You're still on the aisle, I see. If you're, you know, if you're ADHD, by the way, you know that you have to sit on the aisle because if somebody pins you in to the inside of a seat, you become violent. Um, I I would tell a story about that happening one time, but I don't want children's services to come and get me, so. Was she an adult? Oh, she was an adult at the time, it's okay. So one time we were riding somewhere and I got put in the middle of the back seat of a minivan. Oh no, my stomach is tightening up just thinking about it. So I sat back and I, I took a deep breath. Blew it out. Took another deep breath. Blew it out. All of a sudden, my daughter, Sarah, who's sitting next to me, started getting like this, you know? And I told her, stop it. Stop it. I'm not near enough a door. And I bit her forehead. (laughs) Don't do it. At least don't sit next to me when you put me in the middle of a pew. I will bite bite your forehead. I got teenagers looking at me like, are you crazy? I am, I'm nuts. So that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but it happened nonetheless. And that one's not televised, and so I can get away with it. So um, good morning. This is what we're doing. We're, We're looking at how do we make an impact in people's lives. You bite them on the forehead, sir. Well, no, I wouldn't recommend that necessarily. But what are we talking? We're talking about this life of service. Notice the way I put that, a life of service. A life of service, not just to serve, not just to act, an act of servitude, but an actual life of service. 
Jesus said something interesting. He said it a number of times throughout the Gospels. You've heard me say it a thousand times because it's, I think it's one of the most important aspects of who Jesus is. He said, I have not come here to be served. I've come here to serve. Another translation says, I've not come here to be ministered to. I've come to minister. In Philippians, it talks about the fact that we're to have the same attitude as Jesus, who being a very nature of God, didn't hold on to that, but made himself nothing in the nature of a servant. It is our privilege not just to serve, but to live lives of servitude because we've been transformed by Christ into servants. And if I'm, because I'm going to have to go back and listen to this one. The definition of servant in the Greek actually has to do with being a bond servant or literally a slave. I've been purchased by one who I am now enslaved to, and now it is mine to do everything that he commands me to do. But that this servitude, this enslavement, and being enslaved to him is not a matter of this rigid and heavy obligation, but actually an expression of privilege being brought into the family. Now, I want to say that in this regard. When, when we see the terms servant and slave in the Gospels, one of the things I want us, even throughout the epistles, one of the things I want us to see is this. In the, in the Hebrew world, a servant was actually lower than a slave. A servant was a paid employee who you had absolutely no responsibility for or accountability to other than their wage. Other than that, they were truly and utterly seen as just somebody you hire and, you, and they move on. That's not how the Hebrews looked at slaves. The slave was actually part of the family. No, they weren't to be, receive the inheritance necessarily. And they weren't treated as one of the children. But, they, we, but in, in the Jewish world, a slave was cared for as if they were family. They were fed, they were taken care of, they were given everything they needed to be able to live. Christ means to have been purchased in such a way as to be loved by him and given everything that we need to be able to live according to his commands. In other words, a master would never command a slave to do something a slave couldn't do. And would give them everything they needed to be able to do it and then would feed them and clothe them and, and give them quarter on top of it. But then on top of that, that word slave is next to the word adoption or child, that we are actually co-heirs with Christ. Having been purchased, we now are in heart slave to him, and then we are actually adopted into the family as his siblings, co-heirs with him of the kingdom of heaven, and that co heirship it means this. In Ephesians it says, we are, when we come into Christ, we are actually placed in the heavenly realms. We are seated with Christ in God. Both Colossians and Ephesians says it that way. We are seated with him. And Peter then puts it this way, that we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us that can neither rust, it cannot be stolen, moths can't eat it up. And listen to this. It's shielded by God's power. In other words, it is so sure, we can be so sure and confident of our receiving it because it's God's power that shields it. He holds it tight for us. He holds us tight and he holds it given me dad, except for the one that was meant by his own volition to be lost. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And Father, no one can snatch them out of your hand. They're mine and they're yours. This is crucial for us to get. 
that we are co-heirs with Christ with an inheritance waiting for us, shielded by God's power until the coming of our salvation, the realization of our entering into the kingdom of heaven. And that this is the source of our hope and joy, this wonderful inheritance we have. Now, what's really important about that is this. This is what gives us, it contextualizes our lives. It puts in context what we're currently experiencing. Because the fact of the matter is, is our circumstances could be overwhelming. But Jesus said, I have had victory over all of this. I have overcome this world. Don't let your heart be troubled. And in fact, this is what I want you to know about yourself. In me, you are now placed with my Father. An inheritance kept for you, shielded by God's power until the consummation of this whole thing. And that's what gives us context. So that in the middle of this moment, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to shrink back. I don't have to be overwhelmed. When my heart is troubled, I can release it from here and place it into eternity and recognize whose I am, how I was purchased, what is waiting for me, who is. In the meantime, then, I get to serve. No, no, no. In the meantime, I get to serve. I get to serve. I get to serve. But we're going we're gonna to talk about a graduation of that. So do you, you're going to need the notes. Grab the notes. Grab the notes. You're going to need your notes. And in the notes, we're going to look at something. So we're going to briefly read that front end, of, and then this is, there's a slight review, and then we're going to overlap. So the first thing is this. We need to understand privilege, the privilege of being God's child. When we think about, we, when we think about, the commands of God. And to a large degree, I think most of us think in terms of responsibility. And we go, and there is responsibility. I've been given these commands and I have the responsibility to follow, right? To obey. But I think sometimes when we think in terms of commands, we think more in terms of obligation. And obligation in our context feels very weighty. Like I've been given this command, I have the responsibility to do it, and, I, and, I, and it's kind of this almost weightiness about having gotten it done. And I think it's because we've missed the word, and I mentioned this word last week, we missed the word privilege. We have the privilege of doing this. We have the privilege of being God's children. We have the privilege of being on mission. We have the privilege of being the extension of who he is. We have the privilege to do that. And so it gets from, the last week we talked about, it goes from being, I have to do this, to I get to do this. When I begin to recognize privilege, to now wanting to do it. And that's a significant switch. I don't think that's where the switch ends. So let's read on in this. So it says, the privilege of being on God's mission, God, being God's children, joining him in his mission, that's to go and make disciples of all and teach them to obey. That is to love him and to be, um, and it's my privilege to be a servant, to, just like Jesus is a servant. So this is what I want to think about for a minute. I want us to think about what it is to be an heir, what it is to be Christ's possession. What, how it is that he views us? What is, it, what is it that he sees when he looks at us? You know what he, how we're described in the Old Testament and the prophets? We are his plunder. You know what plunder is? He says, he, he calls us his plunder. That And the victory that he has won in overcoming this world and gathering up his brothers and sisters to himself, he calls us the riches of his spoils, the spoils of war. That as he came in and defeated his enemy and conquered his kingdom, he began to take us as plunder. You ever think about plunder? You ever think about being God's plunder? About being the spoils of his victory? That he gathers us up 
and he takes us home as a treasure. That's how he describes us. That as we were under the, under the, uh, under the weight of sin and condemnation and, and being, in essence, slaved, enslaved to the rule of the kingdom of the air, he came in, he punctured that kingdom, he gathered us up, and he keeps us as his treasure. He also describes us as his brothers and sisters. Here, Dad, here I am with all that you've given me, all my brothers and sisters, and I've not lost one. And I'm here with the riches, the treasure, the plunder. Here it is. So here's how I look at going out and winning the lost. We get to plunder the enemy. We get to join God in his victory. We get to go out on his behalf as his representative and his ambassadors. And we get to penetrate into a lost and dying world to take people for plunder, to take the treasure back. We get to be part of that. That's an incredible privilege. I am, I am his plunder. You are his plunder. He fought the war to get, to get you. He hung on the cross to get you. That's an astounding thought. And I think it's a thought we don't think of enough. Because when we think of that thought, it contextualizes everything. It puts everything in perspective. It helps us understand the incredible and intrinsic value that he placed on us. And how deeply held we are by him because he treasures us so. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And I want to let that sit here for a minute because that's the privilege of being in the kingdom of heaven, of being the very treasure of heaven. See, one of the things I think we don't realize when we're looking at 1 Peter and it says that, that we have an inheritance waiting for us is that we think in terms of stuff, actual plunder, gold, and silver, and da, 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 da. You know what I think we lose sight of? That that's not why God did it. Although all those things are there, and we'll talk about that in a second. That's not what God was thinking. You know what God was thinking? He was thinking in terms of relationship, period. That's it, relationship. That everything in all the world that matters more than relationships. I want you to chew on that for a second. Is there anything in all the world that matters more than relationships? Do me a favor, talk to each other about that for a minute. Talk, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Just talk to each other. Is there anything? Ask yourself the question. Is there anything that matters more about it? If yes, then what is it? What is that thing? If no, why is it? Go.
Okay, so listen. There's nothing more important than relationships. In fact, everything that exists is in the context of a relationship. And outside of the context of a relationship, it is nothing but hollow and shallow. It's for the purpose of relationship. You know why? Because God is relationship. You know, when he said it's not good for the man to be alone, we think, oh, he didn't have you all are. No, listen. The reason God was saying it's not good for man to be alone, because he wasn't alone. He had God. He had God. He walked with God. He worked with God. He reigned with God. He had dominion with God. God gave him permission to name everything that he created. Adam was there with God. It wasn't like he didn't have relationship. But so what did God mean when it says it's not good for man to be alone? It was desperate. God, God was saying this. He said, listen, because the word that when he says, I'll make a suitable partner from him, I'll make a suitable partner. What does that mean? It means I will make uh, an appropriate, well-fitting, uh, commensurate complimentary partner for them. One of the same nature. That tells us something. See, God is not the same nature as we are. Although we have Christ's nature in us, we are still his offspring. We are still his creatures. We are still his children. So when Adam was walking with God and God said, it's not good for, me to man, for man to be alone, what he was actually saying was, Adam, my friend, there's nobody suitable for you. There's nobody who matches you. There's nobody for you to be this way. That's why he marched all the animals in front of Adam to name them. See, if you think about the creation story, we usually get it wrong. Because most of us, and it's not, it's not I mean, nobody's fault necessarily, except that we need to read it more. But what it is, is we, we kind of, we were given the flannel graph in my generation, and you guys, I don't know what kids today have. I avoid children's ministry like the plague, but that's beside the point. <laughs> you know, we're given these images, and, and they're fine. It's, it's simple. It's for children. And we have the God, and then we have the man, and then we have the man and the woman, and then we have the garden, and we have some animals, and they prance around, and Adam gets to name the animals, and isn't this fun? And you go, okay, great. It teaches the story in its most fundamental, elemental way. But as we get older, we need to say, okay, Father, what does this mean? What does it actually mean? What happened here? And he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And we go, if we're asking our question, we're going, well, he's not alone. He's got God. And he goes on, I'll make a suitable partner for you, somebody who's like you. Because as much as I love you and you love me and as much wonderful as this relationship has been, the fact of the matter is, is we're, not, we're not the same. And so then we go right to, well, then he put Adam to sleep, right? And grabbed a rib and made a woman and they, what a delightful time that was. Just mentioning this for something to do. Like Adam was bored, he was alone, I'm gonna give him something to do till I figure out what a better thing to do. That's how we picture God. But God's not dumb, he knew and so what does he do? He says, I'm going to take all the animals I've just made and I'm going to march them in front of Adam and I'm going to make him name him. Now hold it, stop. It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a suitable pep helper. Hmm, let's make him name the animals. Like what? What? So he does. And I can't imagine how long that took. I guess it took a long time. Because he's sitting there on a stump and God's just bringing him past him. How many thousands of things did God make that now Adam has to name? And I'm watching everybody's wheels turn and going, oh, you know what? I forgot about that part of the story. Hmm. 
Then what happens? It says that nothing suitable for Adam was found. Nothing. What was God doing? He's saying, sweetheart, I love you, but you're not like me. And I love all the things I've made, but they're not like you. What I want to do for you is something profound and something special. I want you to have a relationship that is so deep and so rich and so like and so complimentary and so completing. But in, what I want you to do is I want for it. I want you to be ready. I want to make a big gaping hole in your heart to fill it with the right thing. Because that's what he was doing. He's saying, Adam, I'm not enough for you. The animals are not for you. I'm going to fill that hole. I'm going to give you this thing. It says he took a rib and he formed the woman and brought the woman to the man. And the man went nuts. He went nuts. Go! That! Oh, yeah! Why? Because I just named every stinking animal on the earth. I had to give it a name. I had to watch it. I'm thinking, what in the world? Dad, what are you doing to me? There, oh, oh, golly. That's bone of my, that's flesh, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. In fact, you know what? I'm going to name her too. I'm going to call her woman because she was taken out of me. She's a piece of me and she'll complete me. Right from the beginning, God is saying it's about relationships. And the reason this is profound is not even as profound as what we just looked at. It's because God's never been alone either. God man to have an object of his affection who could enjoy his glory with him. But God himself had himself in, this, in the context of a beautiful fellowship called the Trinity. That's what we call it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dancing with each other in beautiful relationship. And he's saying, if this is best for me, it is what is best for you. And if it's good enough for me, it's gonna be good enough for you. And if this is the great joy of my existence, then this will be the great joy of your existence. And he gave us each other, just like he has each other. Let us not mistake the kingdom of heaven. It is about relationships, period. And there's nothing more important. There's nothing that even comes close. God relating to himself, God relating to mankind, mankind relating to God, mankind relating to each other, all of us relating to ourselves, and then loving each other accordingly. Love God with everything you are. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You ever have a conversation with yourself? Anybody here ever have a conversation with themselves? Raise your hand if you've ever had a conversation with yourself. Some of you are less crazy than I am. That's okay. But I have had conversations with myself. And in the context of our conversations, have you ever been surprised at the very thing that came out of your mouth and went back into your ears? Like, where did that come from? Anybody? Ah, so we can even relate to ourselves. And it's usually out loud. <laughs> Almost always is it out loud. People think I'm on the phone, I'm not. It's just me and me, talking to me. And oftentimes I'm really surprised at what comes out of my mouth. I'm surprised at what I think. I'm surprised at what I have to say to myself about what I think. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. 
And then I have conversation with others and I have conversation with God. God has conversation with me and I watch God have conversation with others. It's all about relationships. And there's nothing else. There's nothing else. So when God teaches us how to love, he does it in the context of what? A relationship. He sent Jesus to be one of us and to be with us so that we would know him. Then he says, I have saved you to myself, which is awesome, I get to be saved. But he doesn't save me to me. He saves me to him, and he saves me to we. I'm not saved to myself. I'm not. And then he gives me gifts, and although the gifts might be enjoyable for me to give and to serve with and to uh, bless others with, guess what? That's not the purpose of the gift. Why? Because the purpose of the gift is actually to bless others with it in the context of the we. And I will find my greatest satisfaction, not in just merely exercising my gifts for the sake of exercising it, but that I watch the pleasure in your eyes when you receive it. And we're gonna look at that in a second. And this is what God intended. And this is why, listen to me, Jesus died. To purchase all of this to himself. Each one of us, all of us, every one of us, alone and together. Isn't that magnificent? So when we move forward into the idea of serving, understand that the purpose of the serving is not merely to serve, and it's not to do an act of service, but it is because we have been made to be servants, because we're made in the likeness of Christ, who himself took on the nature of a servant. He now saves us to serve, but not just to serve, to be a servant, just like he is. And so our life's fullest expression is in how we love and serve others. In fact, the very service I give to you is the expression of God's love to me, through me, to you, genuinely and sincerely. Not just because God said so, not just because it blesses God for me to do so, but he's made me such, and I get to love you authentically and genuinely and just as you are, just as I meet you with sincere love and affection. Crazy. Okay, go to Romans chapter 12. You'll have to read the rest of that on your own. Because what we just did, whether we know what is Romans chapter 12. Now, you might say, man, you seem to read from Romans chapter 12 a lot. Well, of course I do. You know why? It is the consummation of all things that God has done. Romans 12 is the consummation of everything that he's done in us. It is the how to, the who to, the where to, and the why to. Romans chapter 12. So the whole idea of having been one, you know, having been forgiven of our sin and brought into the kingdom of heaven and have a relationship with God and then to place us in the body, all of that that Romans 1 through 11 talks about finds its fruit born in Romans chapter 12. And he's showing us how. So we're going to look at the first part that we looked at last week and then we're going to go on. You ready? Aren't we excited? This is teaching us how to love. No, how to love. Anybody wonder how to love? Anybody, anybody? You ever meet somebody you're not quite sure how to love them? Am I the only one? Sometimes I meet somebody and I go, how in the world do I love you? And it could be for any number of reasons. Some of you guys are laughing. You're like, yeah, if you knew me, dude, right? Have you had children? Yes. Oh, how do I love this one? <laughs> Sorry. Rachel, Sarah, Anthony, and Ian but you ever meet somebody you don't know how to love them? And it could be because they're so difficult to love. But it could be because you're 
Okay, so here we go. Jesus is teaching us how to love. Right here. This is good. So, you ready? So we're gonna start at verse one. I'm gonna pray. Father, bless this word to our heart. May we be transformed. Just, oh, yeah. May we receive it and do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. It says, therefore, I heard you. Now, we talked about that last week, right? Urge, that strong, just exhortation. I urge you, therefore, in view of God's mercy now, in view of what he's done for you and when he did it, and your condition when he did it. And he did it anyway. That's really important. Really important. In other words, all these things I've written to you about how he's loved you, despite your rebellion, despite your inventing ways to do evil, despite your being rebellious and being against him, despite the fact that you were an enemy when he, when he chose to do it, despite the fact that you still wrestle with your sin in chapter 7 and go back and forth, and why is this thing going on in me? Despite the fact that sometimes I test his assurance and I doubt what he's doing, and yet he promises that he'll fulfill it and nothing can separate me from his love. Despite all that, he did it. And he does it, and he's still doing it. Now he's saying, be in view of that. Where were you when God loved you? What was And yet he loved you. That's mercy. And so when we're called to love, we're called to, to, to love the same way we've been loved. Matthew put it this way. That he lets the sun shine and the rain fall on the fields of both the wicked and the righteous. Because he's merciful. Now you be merciful like your heavenly father's merciful. In order to do that, we gotta be in view of his mercy. And in order to do that, we have to recognize that we needed his mercy. Look what it goes on to say. Anybody else working up some calories right now? Man. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living Offer your body to him as he has offered his. Now you offer yours. And this is, remember before I used to talk about being pleasing to God? We please him as we offer him ourselves. We, we recognize his mercy. We, we are grateful for what he's done, especially when he did it, in the condition in which he found me. And now I offer myself back to him, recognizing I've been purchased with a price. I'm now enslaved to him, but not out of this, this brutal obligation, but out of this incredible gratefulness and appreciation of all that he's done. And I love him so much for having done it. All I can do is want to do what he wants me to do. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. In fact, the only way we can do that to its fullest is to be in view of the mercy. Look what it says. Do not conform any pattern of this world, but now you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You remember who you are and whose you are and what he's done to come and get you, what he's doing in you and through you and his desire for you. Contextualize it. You are not a pauper anymore. You are now an heir to the kingdom. You are not powerless anymore. But in fact, you, in Christ, you have overcome this world. You have victory in this world, and you're called to go into this world. Remember, this, this, you don't have to allow your hearts to be overwhelmed with trouble and circumstance. But remember that Jesus said, oh, don't let your heart be troubled. I have overcome this world. I have, I have had victory over this world, and I give that to you. And remember, in all of this, there's an eternal context. Who says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Look what it says next. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. When? 
when I recognize all of this and I receive it for what it is and my mind has been transformed and then I look at you differently than I did before. Because what is God's will? If everything is about relationships and God has a particular will for us, could it be that his will for us is to function well in the relationships? Could it be? Could it be that really the only thing that matters is in an understanding, I've been loved? Does anything else matter? And if nothing else matters, then is this not how we see and understand his will? So I need to bug, I need to pick on somebody. You're always just in the right spot. Come here, my friend. So I can tell you what God's will is for me in Greg's life to some degree. That is to protect his dignity. Hmm. I'm not to gossip about Greg. I'm not to slander Greg. I'm not to covet Greg's stuff. I'm not to take stuff from Greg. All of that don't stuff, right? That we usually equate with God's commands and why we think the Bible is boring and God is mean. Stop, hold it, wait. All that don't stuff isn't for the sake of don't. It's for the sake of what to do. Remember, when you remove the don't, it leaves that which you're to do. Sometimes we only, we focus on the don't, 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 don't. No, 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 understand this. The don't leaves behind the thing you're supposed to do. So if I'm not supposed to slander Greg, that leaves for me exhorting Greg. If if I'm not supposed to gossip about Greg, then it's mine to protect his dignity. Hmm. If it's not for me to take what is his, it's for me to protect what is his or to actually give him more. Isn't that interesting? For me and Greg's life. In its most fundamental sense, it's to love him sincerely. It's to protect his reputation. It's to come to aid when he's ailing. It's to give when he has need. It's to pray when he's suffering. It's to rejoice when he has victory. That's God's will for me in his life. And you know what I can do? Because my mind has been transformed. I no longer conform to the patterns of this world where all of a sudden I saw him as competition or I saw him as an enemy or I saw him as somebody that I have to somehow get up and over. I have to use him for my own benefit. He has something I want. That's conforming to the old pattern of things, isn't it? Isn't that the way I thought about people before I knew Jesus? Before his mercy was showered on me, I didn't have mercy for Greg. I didn't even know what mercy was. I just saw what Greg had and I wanted it. And I saw Greg's victories and I was jealous. And I saw Greg mourning and I thought, that's too bad. See, now when I'm transformed in my mind, I can test and approve what God's actual will is in his life. In other words, I can say the amen to how he prompts me to love Greg. That's crazy. And that's what love is built on. And this is what God intends. God's will is that we would love each other. And then God's deeper will is I would learn how to love him. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And then the deepest part of the will is not that I would just love him and then learn how to love him. Listen to me, that I would actually love him. that I would actually do it. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Because it doesn't matter what we read here. 
if we're not ingesting it. And then using that for the fuel for exercise. And then exercising it. The fact is, I love this man. He's a friend. My, God's will in my life for him is to just learn who he is and to learn to love him and to love him well and to rejoice when he rejoices and to mourn when he mourns. To support him when he needs it. To back off if he needs space. To speak as he needs encouragement and to keep my mouth shut when he needs to hear the Holy Spirit. To give when he has need, but not just give if I want to give. Is there anything else in all of life that matters this much, let alone more? You tell me. Because you know what this is worth? Whatever Jesus is willing to pay for it. Hmm. Because what Jesus was paying for was not just me. Because he could have taken me and just stuck me on a shelf and said, look, there's one of my trophies. No, you know what he says to his dad? Here I am with the brother you gave to me. With the sister. You can, here I am, dad. And everybody you've given me. We aren't trophies on a shelf. We're brothers and sisters, dearly and deeply loved. And now we're called. We're commended. We have the privilege of being part of the process. Being on mission with our brother and our friend. Our lover. Isn't that amazing? So when we read Romans 12, what Jesus do? All these things you've experienced with Jesus. All these things that he has done in you. All these things that he has, that he has, he has meant for you. This is how. This is how. And I can't give you specifics because I'm not in your life. Could you imagine if, he, if, if we had a Bible that contained every possible circumstance that each one of us is going through to tell us just what to do and when to do it and how to do it? Can you imagine? Who would read it? I couldn't even get in the Dewey Decimal System and find my name. Like, oh my goodness. Blah, 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 and then the circumstance. Oh, no, no. And then the person. Blah, 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 right? No. And so he does two things for us. He gives us a beautiful word of God, which is alive and active. that pierces right through between the bone and the marrow and the, right between the spirit and the soul. And it, 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 and it alivens us and it connects us to him. And his Holy Spirit speaks that stuff to us. And it's there and it's real. And if I can remember the second thing, I'd be great. But I can, oh, the Holy Spirit. Well, that makes sense. So he gives us the word and he gives us the spirit of God. And the Spirit of God promises to show us everything Jesus did and remind us of everything he said and then to empower us to live just like him, that we would bear fruit of Jesus. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. But the Spirit only speaks what Jesus is. So the Holy Spirit giving honor to Jesus says this is how Jesus lived. He was joyful. That's a whole nother thing. It is to say that his role is, read John chapter 14, by the way, is to empower us and to connect us to God and to remind us of everything Jesus did and said that, and empower us to do it. And so it's ours now to join him in that and to grow in wisdom. 
to grow in wisdom. So let me bug you one more time. Thanks. Come here. No, yeah, I'm bugging you one more time. So as I'm in a relationship with Greg, it's enough for me to know Greg and to see Greg and to love Greg. It's another thing altogether to get to know Greg more and that my love for him would grow from just loving and doing the fundamental truths, but then getting to know him in such a way as to understand how to love him, gain insight into who he is and what love is to him and how he receives love and what that love means for him. That's insight. And then I have to discern which one works in this case and which one works in this circumstances. Then I have to have discretion as to how much I give and how much I hold back. Then I have to understand how that might affect us and him and what happens then. And only then can I apply it. And I even do that with prudence. I'm careful. I'm circumspect. I want his best. Wisdom is not just knowing Greg and knowing about love. That's knowledge. Knowledge ain't wisdom. Wisdom is the skill to apply it. In order to, and I do that through sincere love. Loving God sincerely, loving Greg sincerely, and letting him teach me how to love him. And God's not the only one who teaches me. Greg teaches me. If I'm listening, if I truly care, if I really want his best, if I desire his best, then I let him teach me how to love him and I obey because I'm his servant. I'm his slave. Did you know that? And the New Testament says we're slaves to one another. And I'm called to love Greg according to the way Greg is made and according to his name or his needs. That takes time, prayer, investment, caring, consideration. Isn't that amazing? And that's relationship. Now you get to enjoy the parts of the relationship as you go, but it just deepens and gets richer and thicker and more profound. So, sit down, would you? Sheesh. All right, come on. Luckily, one of his love languages is sarcasm. So here we go, watch. So I'm gonna speed through this and then we're gonna ask you and where you were when he found you and how he loved you anyway. Now you offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. You do that by not conforming any longer to the pattern of this world, but now being transformed in your thinking, in your mind, you learn to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, Paul says, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. I gotta stop here for a minute. You know, the you know, best way for me to not love somebody is think more highly of myself than I should. I mean, you could just call that conceit and arrogance and the fact that I, you know, I'm, I put myself above you. But I, it's more subtle than that. I, don't, I wanna leave here with a little more insight than that. You ever feel like you know somebody so well and you know yourself so well that you know how to love them and so you just love them without really any consideration for how they need to be loved? Have you ever done that? Have you ever loved somebody the way you think they need to be loved because you know better? Anybody? Anybody married? <laughs> Husbands? Have we ever done that to our wives? Children? Have your parents ever done that to you? The fact of the matter is, is thinking more highly of ourselves certainly can mean that I'm arrogant and I'm boastful and I, I'm just, therefore I'm, not, I'm just not able to see. But it could be as subtle as thinking that I know better than you do. 
I'm gonna finish that sentence, so let me get the fix for you right now. We can cut this conversation right down to nothing. That is thinking too highly of yourself. That is making you ineffective in your love for somebody else. That is what's keeping you from plumbing the depths of someone with God to know truly and care truly what their need is. So I don't want to stop at just, oh, it's arrogant and boastful. No, it's more than that. It's more subtle than that. It's more important than that. It's deeper than that. It is truly recognizing that you know nothing. What you need to know is God's word. You know nothing. What you need is the Holy Spirit to speak to you. You know nothing. You need to listen to the one who's sitting in front of you. You know nothing. And you need to listen to the one who's speaking to you. You know nothing. Let them teach you how to love you. Love them. Let them show you what their actual need is. Let them guide you to the secret parts of their heart so they can trust you enough to let you touch it and bring healing to it. I think that's what Paul's getting at. Too often it's too base. In order for us to truly love in the context we find ourselves in, we need to recognize the depth of hurt in the people around us. I'm gonna skip down to a verse while the band gets in place because we still have communion to do. And I would encourage you, if they, I mean, frankly, you got the whole text through a lot of the tirade because it was informed by the text, but I wanna see some, a part of the text here. And I wanna contextualize it in our current circumstances and then give it an eternal perspective. Okay, so look what it says here. Because we who have been made for relationships have four spheres of influence, right? We've talked about that. Our family, those people were responsible, most responsible for, the family of God who we fellowship with and have been brought in by God, by his pleasure and placed in this body. Think about that for a minute. It is by God's pleasure you have been placed in the particular body he has you for the purpose of bringing everything you are to that body to edify that body for their good. Isn't that crazy? Third, your neighbor those people you come in contact with that are really outside of your immediate sphere of influence or, or you have a distinct long-term responsibility for, but you still have impact in their lives. And then the lost. That all those first three relationships and how you function in them show the lost if you're really mm, authentic in your faith. Woo! And in the context of today, if we don't contextualize it ourselves, circumstances we're living under could be utterly overwhelming. And while they're overwhelming in terms of the, just giving trouble to the heart that we don't know how to function because that's how we think of when we think of overwhelming, or if it's just that we've allowed it to overwhelm the grace in our hearts, or we've allowed it to overwhelm the mercy in our hearts, or we've allowed it to overwhelm the wisdom in our hearts, or we've allowed it to, to overwhelm our genuine consideration and care for others, regardless of their political stand, regardless of what they think about the moment, regardless of how they feel about the moment. We've allowed it to overwhelm our mercy toward them. All of that is being overwhelmed. All of that is true in our current context. All of us need to sit back and go, okay, Father, what would you have for us right here, right now, in this moment, in every sphere of influence you've given me? And how should I speak, shh, 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 shh. how should I speak to them? How do they need to be spoken to? Not what I want to say, not what I feel like saying, not what I think I have to say, 
How do they need me for me to speak to them now? How? How? Here we go, ready? So it goes on, verse nine. This love must be sincere. I really feel about this person, no matter what I think about their opinion, no matter what I think about their position, I have to love them more than just smiling and going, mm, 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 and walking away and going, Psh, what a moron. Is, that, is this not the motion of the day today? I'm just being frank with you. Is this not it? Oh, hey, huh, good to see you. Psh, well, what a dink. I'm surprised we all don't need to see the chiropractor from this all the time. Listen, our love is to be sincere. Which means with every encounter, we pray that God would, by the Holy Spirit, would literally just bore into the heart of the one in front of us and give us some sort of insight as to what it is we can do to encourage them or to give them life or to give them wisdom or to give them care or to speak healing to them. Sincere, unfeigned. Not walking away and rolling your eyes. Telling a friend, stop it. Look what it says. Oh, we're running out of time. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Hate what would bring somebody's heart into peril. Hate what would cause somebody's mind to twist the understanding of God. Hate what, some, what, what a lie would tell about God, about themselves. Hate that. Hate what gossip does to somebody's reputation. Hate it. Hate it. Hate it. Hate anything but love what is good. Cling to what is good. Hold on to that which brings life, that brings esteem, that brings dignity, that brings healing. Cling to that. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another. Be committed to one another. Commit yourself to the betterment of one another, to the love of one another. Look what it goes on to say. And then honor one another above yourselves. Not just not thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Now honor the other one that's better than you. Remembering who it is that has won you and your, your position and that eternal perspective of what it is that God has done in your life and all the things he holds in store for you. And now give yourself up. Be the slave you were meant to be. Goes on to say, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Notice that word spiritual isn't capital S. It's a little s, because he's talking about the spirit of the man. In other words, the person who serves, their spirit is enlivened and given joy, and it's invigorated, and it bubbles over. So if you're tired right now, it could very well be that you need to find someone to love and to learn how to love and then to bring service to and within the confines of the family and the body of Christ. Look what it goes on to say. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That sounds like it's something we need to be thinking about right now. All three of those. Hope, right? joyful in hope, patient in affliction, life to them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Happy is, be happy. Bless, bless and don't curse. Don't walk away swearing under your breath. Don't walk away bringing curses down on their head. Don't walk away smearing their reputation. Don't walk away embedding deeper in your heart your ill feelings for them. Look at what's next. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We're gonna close with this before we go into communion. I don't know about you guys, the hardest thing for me to do is rejoice with somebody else who's rejoicing. 
because I am a jealous man and I want what you got. I don't like losing, so I hate it when you win. I wish I had that, but you got it instead. Anyone have trouble rejoicing with other people who rejoice? Allow, truly wanting their happiness? Maybe in spite of your own. Maybe instead of your own. Maybe alongside your own. Can we rejoice in somebody else's happiness? Can we rejoice in somebody else's victory? Can we truly, honestly, sincerely rejoice in somebody else's success? The sincere love of Christ that is now admitted deeply in us compels us to do so, enables us to. How can I approve of what, and test and prove what God's will is? I read the rest of the text. His will is that I would rejoice with you. I would rejoice. Man, I'm so glad you're doing well. I'm so glad you got that thing. I'm so glad that this is going well. I'm so glad for you, sincerely. But here's the next one that I think is even more pertinent right now. Mourn with those who mourn. Now, I don't have a problem mourning with the acute mourning of somebody who's suffered loss. I do that a lot, actually. You know what I have trouble mourning with are those people that, whose mourning seems odd to me. Like, why would you mourn that? Does that make sense? Yesterday in men's group, we had a phenomenal meeting. And one of the young men, we were talking about current events and how it might align with end times and how it is we're conducting ourselves during that time. And one of the things, of course, is living a life that is godly and being an example to the lost and, and continuing to look, you know, to see through the current circumstances in such a way as to actually rejoice in them because, you know, God's doing something profound and good and he's going to bring good out of this. And we were talking through all those things, and one of the young guys goes, he goes, you know what I think we lose sight of? That the whole world's mourning right now. The whole world is mourning right now. And some of it's obvious. They're mourning the loss of loved ones. But some of it's less obvious. That they had before. They're, they're mourning the loss of being able to go out with friends on a Friday night and be able to relax and have a good time and not think about anything but the fact we're together. They're mourning certain aspects of worship and certain aspects of fellowship and certain aspects of visiting and certain aspects of conversation. The whole world right now is suffering loss. The whole world is mourning right now. The whole world is. And you know what we get to do? We don't have to. We get to. In fact, we should not only get to, we should grow to want to and then grow into this. That we would, just like Isaiah, we'd go, here, here am I, send me. Send me, I want to do this thing. It's what Jesus said. The body you gave me, the God you prepared for me, God, give it to me, I want to go. The privilege we have right now in this world that is mourning is to bring the salve of the gospel and the good news of Christ Jesus into each life. Believers, as we speak the truth into the life of one another for joy and for encouragement and a reminder of what's to come and into the lost, that when they see us rejoicing, even in our suffering, we trust that God will work everything out for the good of those who love him and been called according to his purposes. That as, as we walk and we're being formed more and more into the likeness of Jesus himself, that they would look at us and they go, what is wrong with you? because Jesus met me in mine. And I know you're hurting now. And I know you're suffering loss now. And I know you're afraid now. And I know you're confused now. And I know you're angry now. And I know you're denying. I know, I know it. I get it. But I'm not, I'm just here to 
love you sincerely. To not think of myself more, than, more highly than I should, but in fact, I want to hear from you why you feel the way you do, and then share with me how I might meet you in it and guide you through it. How can we walk together? Take my arm. Come with me. That I now would honor you as being better than me. I don't care about your opinion. I don't care about your thoughts. I don't care about your... No. How, how can I meet you now? How can I encourage you? How can I bring you life? How? That's the consummation of the gospel in us. That is the essence of relationship. That is when we learn to love people sincerely, not thinking more highly about ourselves, but that we could honor others being better than ourselves and meet them in the rejoicing and meet them in their mourning and bring them the hope of Christ. All of this empowered by a spirit that desperately wants to work with us in it, to cooperate with him. So that the fruit of Jesus is born out of us. Peace, love, joy, perseverance. In this, for crying out loud. So, we're gonna have communion. We're, in this moment, we're gonna try to figure out how to love Jesus sincerely, to meet him sincerely, and to encounter him sincerely that you would love me with such mercy, such grace, such ridiculousness, and you would do it in this context. We're gonna sing a song. While we sing the song, just sing it sincerely to Christ and receive from him his presence and his prompting. Let's stand and sing. Before we enter into communion, I'd like you to pick your notes up and I'd like you to look at the back page. We talk about four spheres of influence, family, the church of God, the brotherhood, our neighbor, and specifically, or in particular, the lost. You know, when communion happened, it wasn't Jesus standing by himself in a room. He was with friends. He was with people who mattered to him, people he loved dearly. And our experience in communion is oftentimes we were saved between us and Jesus. And so this is certainly a private moment. But the fact of the matter is, is we weren't just saved to me. We were saved to we. We were saved to the one another. We're saved to him. What you have in your hands is a list of questions that I'm going to ask you to take the time to look at this week. We're going to take each one of these fears over the next four weeks and we're going to talk about who these people are in our lives and how do we love them. It is ours right now to have communion with the faces of those who God raises up in this moment. Who in my family have I been given to love? Who among the body am I called to serve? What neighbors am I praying for? How do I impact their lives? And who are the lost people in my life who I'm desperate to see come to Jesus? That's communion. It's what was, it's what is, and it's what will be. That's your plunder right there. Jesus was with his disciples and he said, I love you so much, I'm gonna offer you my body. And so he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you, my beloved. You, my friends, you, my brothers. I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends because you know your master's business. And now you're part of the business. Whenever you eat this, remember me. And it says he took a cup at the end of the meal. He said, this is a cup 
When the new cup, whenever you drink this, remember me. Now, as we go into this final song, this is what I'd like you to do. That list is for you to take home, those questions. There's a prayer sheet you may have been given that you're welcome to fill out, put in the giving box on your way out. But the encouragement I would give you is bring both these sheets Wednesday night at seven o'clock and join us in the fellowship hall for prayer and worship and fellowship. Seven o'clock, down at eight. Let's close in, let's close in song. You know, I could not think of a more appropriate song for both this message and the times what I don't understand is how he got his guitar to sound like a banjo. I think that was, that was what I didn't understand. <laughs> you know, I, it's time to go, and I don't want to belabor this, but I was just standing in the back with another friend, and it, it was very interesting to me. I, I told the first service, I got a call from a buddy of mine last week after he watched the service. He's out in California. And he said, you know, you got, you're talking about kindness. He said, but it wasn't real practical. I'm like, what could be more practical than teaching somebody to be kind, which literally means to be useful in both the moment and for eternity. And I said to him, I said, you know, if God wrote a volume for every circumstance and every person and every encounter we would have so that we would know just what to do, no one would read the thing. You couldn't find anything so that we would be in relationship with the Holy Spirit. That is, he gives us the general principle and the, the very thing that he would, the manner and the way and the, the, the wonderful little heart of the gospel right there. We have to listen to him. We have to abide in him. We have to engage and encounter him. We have to cooperate with him. And then that would keep us actually from getting to know the person in front of us. Why in the world should I be given a whole list of instructions how to love Ashley when in fact the best thing to do is to get to know Ashley in a way that teaches me how to love her? And that the process of the getting to know is the best part. Be careful, be careful about complaining about it not being jot and tittle enough, about being too rules-oriented. Don't let that shackle your hearts. Walk freely in Christ Jesus according to his word and allow the Holy Spirit to open you up and to allow you to experience the actual person of him and Jesus, the Father, and the person in front of you to get to know them. Take your time. Don't be in a hurry, please. I love you all so very much. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you Wednesday or Sunday or both. Be good.